Welcome back to the Midas and Paris podcast. I am Zen, and this is the podcast about all things travel, be it food, what to pack for your next trip, or your next exotic destination. And with me again is Kristen. Good morning, TGIF from our recording time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and baby, somewhere. Yes. <laughs> we heard her earlier. She's out there. And Emily is busy today, but never fear. We've recalled Lee for active duty. Hello, hello, hello. Hey. All right. So today we have a special surprise for everyone. We've a special guest, Laura Morelli. Hello, Laura, you still there? I'm here. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Thanks for coming. So we're very lucky to have Laura today. Laura is a USA Today bestselling author of historical fiction. Her works include The Gondola Maker, an IPP Award and Benjamin Franklin Award winner, The Painter's Apprentice, Editor's Choice for Historical Novels Review, um, the Giant won an Indie Bragg medallion. Um, she also has written The Night Portrait, which was a USA Today and Publishers Weekly bestseller and book club pick for Costco, Target, Veranda, and Hudson News. And she also has done a series of shopping guides, which I'm really curious about, like Made in Venice, Artisans of Florence. Um, and Laura's here to tell us about her new book that's coming up, releasing this year, um, which is called The Stolen Lady, a novel of World War II and the Mona Lisa, and to give us some ideas of what to look for when purchasing some things when you're abroad. Um, sound about right? Sound good, Laura? Wow, that uh, that was a, a very impressive introduction. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> was it? Yeah, I can barely follow all those accolades. <laughs> 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 well, as you can probably tell, I'm um, I'm I'm not a young chicken, and I've and I've been to I've been, you know, it's been kind of a circuitous path in my career. I actually started out as an art historian and working in academia, teaching art history classes at the college level. Um, but then I moved into writing and historical fiction, and that's where I really found my niche in the world. But um, it certainly wasn't a straight path. Cool. Okay, well, we're going to get back to this. We're going to learn a lot more about you and your books and, you know, about your travels abroad in a couple minutes. And right after a quick commercial break from our sponsor. When you look back upon your life and you see all the things you achieved, certainly none of them started with inaction. And when you're planning for your next career journey, find us, the University of California, Irvine. We've over 80 convenient online certificates to help you navigate the future, and we're the perfect Sherpa for your next big adventure. Find us at ce.uci.edu. Okay, we're back, and thank you so much, Laura, for joining us today. And I'm curious, based on what you shared about your your very nonlinear path, which many of us can (laughs) relate to, when did you first realize you wanted to be a writer? Well, I think like many writers, it was really very, very early, like one of the first memories, you know, and I have to thank my parents uh, for that because I started out as an only child. Um, I did end up with a younger brother, but only seven years later. And so my parents really read to me every single day. Um, and when I was a baby and a toddler, I constantly had a book in my hand. My parents read to me a lot. Um, I memorized the stories. I was obsessed with books. And I can remember, you know, at 
at preschool age, probably three or four years old, um, pasting, taping, stapling together pages, drawing pictures, writing words on the pages, and, you know, creating a quote-unquote book. So this love of books was was very deeply ingrained at an early age, and I, I think that's a a familiar story to many people who end up as writers is they had kind of a fascination with language or a passion for, for books. And, you know, beyond the physical objects, I was born and raised in the South. Um, my, I come from a long family of storytellers. My father was an incredible storyteller. And so there was that love of, of stories and, you know, what happens next that was also a part of my formation at a young age. Oh, fantastic. We really appreciate that. That sounds like quite a journey. So, so, you know, reading about your background um, with art history and, um, you know, art history and it sounds like you travel a lot um how tell us how that um mixes in your new book what how does that inspire your writings and uh, tell us a little bit about your new book as well uh, the new book that I have coming out on September 21st is called The Stolen Lady, and it's a dual timeline historical novel that goes back and forth um, between the Italian Renaissance and the World War II era. And the, the portrait of the Mona Lisa stands at the center of the story. Um, you may have heard um, the story of how the Louvre Museum in Paris hid its treasures in the French countryside during World War II. It's really one of the most amazing adventures of World War II. Um, so that's the backdrop, backdrop for half of the story. The other half is the creation of the portrait itself in Renaissance Florence and the story of how Leonardo da Vinci came to the commission and, and what happened with the portrait and mysteriously why it was never delivered to its patron, um, which was something that, you know, a question that I wondered about uh, both as an art historian and as a historical novelist. So this portrait is um, has been something that's fascinated me for a long time. I don't need to tell you that it's the most famous painting in the world. And, um, you know, again, from a young age, I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to travel um, as a preteen. And um, when I started on this book project, I actually went back to a diary that I kept as a 12 year old when um, I had the opportunity <laughs> wow. I had wow. the opportunity to go to travel to Paris as a 12 year old so I, I said hmm, what did 12 year old Laura have to say about the Mona Lisa because I remembered that it was something that really stuck with me and you know was formative and something I remembered so what I had written was that I had seen the Mona Lisa and yes she was smiling but I thought there was something a little bit sad in her expression. Hmm. And so it was that idea of the happy, but maybe not so happy Lisa that sort of drew me back to this story. Um, and uh, so that was kind of the spark of this dual timeline tale. So cool. your um, was your specialty in art history? Was it Renaissance painting or was it more niche? What did you, what was your specialty with art? 
I did specialize in the Middle Ages and Renaissance, but truthfully, I really think there's something fascinating and wonderful in every period of art history. And, you know, art history professors typically like to teach only in their specialty. But I have to say, I really have enjoyed teaching the art history survey, which, you know, covers everything from prehistoric cave paintings up to contemporary art, um, because I really think there's something fascinating in each period to appreciate. Sure. So with going back to your book specifically, who is your ideal audience? Because I'm sure a lot of people have that first impression like I did, like this sounds very Da Vinci Code-ish, which I loved, but would that appeal to people like Da Vinci Code or are there other people that you think would appreciate the book? Well, certainly, um, you know, there are some, uh, you know, it is a fast paced read, um, which, you know, maybe is um, something that you might associate with the Da Vinci Code. But my readers, by and large, are really lovers of historical fiction, and mm. often they're people who are in book clubs and who really mm. enjoy gathering around with uh, with some cake or maybe a glass <laughs> of wine and, and chatting about, well, what did you think about this? Or, you know, mm-hmm. what did you get from that? And really kind of delving deeper and learning more. I find that... Um, my readers tend to come to historical fiction for the same reasons that I do, which is that uh, they want to learn something about history or about something they didn't really know about before. But more than that, they want to see what the past looked like, feel what it what it felt like, smell what it felt like, taste mm-hmm. things from the past. They want to kind of immerse themselves more in the sensory details and to experience what it really was, what it really felt like to be in the era that you're reading about or the place that you're reading about. And I think that's really the uh, the historical novelist's job is to immerse the reader in that experience of being in a particular time and place in the past. Um, you know, that's a reader who doesn't necessarily want to get hit over the head with a textbook, but at the same time, they, they want to, you know, learn, come away smarter, come away more informed, um, come away feeling like, oh, I just had a wonderful journey into the past. Um, I think it's similar in a way to those who write science fiction, you know, a historical huh. novelist creates a world, builds a whole mm-hmm. world in the same way that a science fiction writer might create another planet, you know, or something and has to describe what it's like to be there and what it yeah. looks like. It smells like and feels like I that's great. And I, I love historical fiction personally. And one of the reasons is it really humanizes the past. It's you, you can read about historical events or people and, and, you know, Wikipedia, you just have a list of facts, but to really have a person of history brought alive with all of their like feelings and emotions and relationships that to me is one of the most rewarding parts of historical fiction. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, as as, particularly when you read about massive historical events like World War II, um, you know, sometimes you read a historian's account and it's very dry and, you know, they're talking about massive numbers of troops, you know, Mm -hmm. landing here or, or the, you know, the decisions of the top level people. But when you get that individual story of just a normal human being who was on the ground at that time, 
time and the things that they struggled with and the emotions or a, mm-hmm. a situation that someone was in. You know, if you're talking about a, a child who's hiding in a farm, you know, house because the Gestapo is knocking on the door, that's a completely different experience than reading about, you know, the, the landing of 4,000 troops at a particular location. So definitely it's that humanization, like you said, that I yeah. think draws a lot of readers in. Definitely. Do, do you have any, um, do you have any inspiration in particular of other writers? I mean, when I listen to you talk about your books, it reminds me of some of the stuff Orson Scott Card has done where he um, looks to the past and he makes fiction. Actually, he mixes fantasy with fiction or science fiction with, Oh, I'm sorry. Science fiction with history or um, his anyways, fantasy with fiction. Well, who's who's your inspirations? Do you have any? Well, I really always begin with um, a work of art or a particular setting at the center of of my books, and so um, that's always the start. But oh, I, there's so many authors that I admire, so many historical novelists I admire. Um, I love, um, for example, you know Tracy Chevalier's book "Girl with mm. a Pearl Earring" was an early mm-hmm. influence oh, for me. Yes. I love Ken Follett's books. I don't know if you've read "Pillars of the Earth," but I just you know, finished that actually I, during it's quarantine. A, it's a great book. And, you know, I, I read that. That book came out when I was finishing my PhD and I was very ensconced in medieval architecture and I knew yeah. all of the factual stuff. But what I loved about that book was, you know, as soon as I sat down and started reading it, yes, he includes all of this intimate detail about the construction of a cathedral, but immediately I forgot about all of that because I'm only worried about this poor guy who's um, who's on a horse and he's been stopped in the middle of the woods by a big guy with a sword, you know, and I just want to, I just want to get back to the book. I'm, you know, cooking dinner, but I want to stop and go back because I need to know what happens next. And so- That's really, um, you know, a great story when it keeps calling you back from doing something else. Mm-hmm. How how indebted do you feel that you, I mean, like, how much liberty do you take? Like, for example, I mean, every, like every kid who took history classes, like, read The Agony and the Ecstasy. And you, all of it is fictional because we really don't know what Michelangelo was doing day to day other than this day he met the Pope. All the dialogue is written from the ground up. How much liberty do you feel like you take? Or do you really, really try hard to make it as uh, you find as much writings about the different people as possible? So um, it's a really good question. And, you know, I could talk all day about this. No, and, you know, it's such a common question. And it's really it's one of the first questions I always get when I visit a book club is, you know, so what is what did you make up and what part really happened? And um, so I do my best to really try to stick to the known historical record. Um, and so I always begin a research project with primary sources. That means, you know, things that were written at the time. I really try to immerse myself in how people wrote, what language they use, what interesting different words they used. Um, and so I, I do my best to be faithful to the, the historical record as we know it. The beautiful thing, though, is that the, the, 
historical record is riddled with giant holes. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's where, you know, history ends and historical fiction begins. So, you know, for the Mona Lisa, for example, we we're pretty sure that um, that Leonardo da Vinci sat in front of this young woman named Lisa Giardini, who was the right, the wife of a silk broker in Florence around 1503, 1504. We think his father arranged the commission. Um, and beyond that, as you say, we don't know what their conversation was. We don't know exactly where they were sitting. Um, we don't know some of those specific sensory details, you know, were there wagons carrying hay bales going down the cobblestone streets? Were there birds, you know, sitting on the windowsill? All of these things that we can imagine, but we don't have any evidence for. And so that's really the fun for me. It's like putting a puzzle together, you know, with the with the known facts. And, you know, it's like one of those puzzles of a thousand pieces and a third of the pieces are missing or two thirds of the pieces are missing. And you have to fill in all of those holes. And uh, it really is um, a, a fun thing to to piece together. Laura, I'm curious. Um you know, parents always say that they have no favorite children, but <laughs> I secretly know that I am my mother's favorite, um, which is why my siblings never listen to this. But um, I'm curious in all of the characters you've developed, both, you know, the authentic historical, the, the people we know who existed and the ones that you kind of had some liberty with. Who's your favorite character? And we're not going to tell the other ones why you chose. <laughs> we won't. No, I get it. I have four children, so I totally, totally get it and could never choose one over the other. But um, but with characters his, uh, in, in books, it, it is a little different. Um, I always feel a, such a burden of responsibility when writing a, a real historical character. And, you know, I've written um, about... I've written Michelangelo. I have written Leonardo da Vinci. I, you know, I've written a couple of high-ranking Nazi leaders. Um, that, you know, those are characters where you really feel the the burden of history, the the burden of getting it right, the the burden of you know double, triple checking your dates, your um, your facts, all of that stuff, um, and. You know, on the other hand, we have complete, I, I always in my books, I typically have at least a few real historical characters. I have um, completely made up characters. And sometimes, and this is probably one of my favorite types of characters, I have a character who is um, a real historical person about whom we know almost nothing. <laughs> And so that Ooh. is, uh, that one is a, that's a fun one. So for my book, The Giant, which is based on the creation of Michelangelo's David, the protagonist mm -hmm. is a young man who was a real person, who was a real artist named Jacopo Torni. Um, we have some really interesting little fleeting tidbits that were written about him, um, at the time. Uh, for example, we know he was, um, that uh, he lived in very close contact with Michelangelo. He was one of his closest friends. Uh, we're told that he was a prankster, a practical joker. Mm -hmm. um, we're told that he was lazy, um, but that <laughs> Michelangelo invited him to be on the team to paint the Sistine ceiling. 
And that's pretty much it. So we, what a tantalizing figure, right? I mean, we have a couple of really interesting <laughs> little details, but not very much else. And so um, for me, you know, that was a perfect type. That was a perfect character to, uh, to start with. So, so that's fun. Um, you know, the, the completely made up characters are, of course, the most convenient ones because you can <laughs> put them where you need them whenever they need to be there. They can get important critical information at just the right time to move the plot forward. <laughs> and so, um, I always have those <laughs> handy because, um, you need them to tell a good story, I think. Thank you so much. Okay, I, 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 I got. I, I gotta go with um, things related to like other types of travel, like because you 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 wrote some books that are fascinating. I, I uh, like, for example, your um, you have some books about what to purchase, from what I can tell. So, like, if you were able to bring back one thing so we had a podcast oh boy today my speech centers aren't working i'm sorry um (laughs) we've had podcasts about bringing back souvenirs from around the world and you've you have done a few books on italy venice florence naples and france in the southwest um pick one place and tell us what you would bring back if you were going to those areas something maybe that might be unexpected yeah, that's a really good question. So um, these shopping guides are um, are really, uh, I think, fun because they're a little bit different than your, you know, Fodor's or Fromer's guides. Uh, those are those are wonderful guides. But, you know, my guidebooks don't tell you where to sleep or what what to eat, but they, um, they tell you where to find the most authentic artisans and things that are handmade and associated with the place that you're going. So, uh, for France, for example, it might be Limoges porcelain or, um, you know, handmade umbrellas. And for, uh, Florence, for example, it might be leather goods mm-hmm. and, um, but, you know, there are a lot, there are several rules of thumb. You know, I always look for things that are, that have a long tradition behind them, like Murano glass, for example, or, um, or like I mentioned, the leather goods of Florence. These are things that have been made in the same way for hundreds of years and family secrets that have been passed down from one generation to the next. I always think those are the best souvenirs. And then, you know, also think, uh, places where you can buy directly from the artisan that that's a wonderful thing not only because you come home with something authentic but you can make a connection with the person who's who has made it and that i think is a an invaluable part of travel it's you know it's those types of things that you really bring home as memories and things that are really special so my particular favorite thing to shop for when i when i travel um is jewelry and I'm, and I, it does not have to be expensive. I don't have anything in my drawers that is, is expensive. I mean, literally, if someone, if a thief broke in tonight and stole everything, it, you know, it, I'd have no insurance claim. But everything that I've bought is special to me because it's, 
um, something where I've gone and I've met the person who's made the piece. I've talked to them. Um, it's something traditional. It's something authentic. And it reminds me of the place. So what I love about jewelry is it's easily portable. You can, you know, wear it or you can uh, put it in a small bag or a box and easily stash it in your suitcase and get it home. Um, but the really fun part about it is, you know, years later after a trip, you know, I might open a drawer and pull out a necklace that I bought, uh, let's say, from a Navajo artisan in New Mexico and put it on to go out to dinner. And just for a few minutes, it puts a smile on my face because I'm just, you know, my brain is flushed with all of those memories of that trip of the person that I met whose love and labor went into crafting the piece. Um, and when I wear it, it it makes me feel happy and, you know, it brings back all of those memories. So I like jewelry because it's, you know, it allows you to keep pulling it out, putting away and putting away these little memories and then pulling them out again. And uh, so I think that's fun. I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm the same and I don't need like the expensive jewelry, but it's like a, a useful thing. Like if I'm going to wear a necklace anyways, I like to have one that has these memories attached with it. And it's not something that's just going to, I'm going to, set on a shelf and never look at as I pass by or anything like that. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So with, with your travels, could you pick a favorite city that you've been to? Oh, I like, um, I've traveled and enjoyed so many places, but I yeah. have to say I have a special place in my heart for Venice. Um, for mm -hmm. some reason, it's just one of those places that is so unlike anywhere else. It's a bit like New Orleans, you know, it's like <laughs> if you, if somebody plunked you down and, uh, you know, and you, you had no knowledge of it and you closed your eyes and somebody described it to you, you would say, there's no way this is a real place. You made it up completely. It. And then, you know, if somebody then took, took their hand away from your eyes, you would just be so amazed. And so um, I think there is just something, just that visual overload in Paris, in, uh, in Venice and, and mm -hmm. that, that feeling like it's such an impossible place, it's such an impossible city. Yeah. It's one of those places where you can take a picture anywhere and it's like a postcard. Everything's beautiful. Right. Every right. corner, every street, every canal, everything. So you could take a picture of the ground. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I remember when I was a, a young man and I was um, uh, going to Venice, like in my teens and just one day, um, in the evening, it rained and like all the cobblestones were glistening from the lights of the, you know, from the street lights. And I'm just like, everything here's a freaking postcard. Right. <laughs> mm, yeah. So, well, it, you know, it, do you, since you're telling us that Venice is your uh, favorite place, is there something um, in particular that you would recommend people go check out? You know, well, other than the Murano glass, I, I've been to that factory and that thing's amazing. It, it is. Yeah. Murano is, is fascinating. I would recommend that, um, you know, that you get on the ferries and go out to the islands. Um, Murano is wonderful, but um, there are other islands in the Venetian lagoon that are a little bit more remote. You can get away from the crowds and there each island is really a little bit different. Um, and there's something to explore in each place. Burano, for example, is beautiful mm. with its colorful buildings and it's known for its lace making 
tradition that's hundreds of years old. Um, Torcello is a beautiful island with an old um, church on it. Um, you can visit the plague islands. Um, you have to plan in advance a, a little bit because um, the, the ferries, the Vaporetti, only go there a couple times a week. But if you want to, uh, you know, understand the history of pandemics, it's fascinating. Um, and so there are, there are a lot of places in, you know, what I find about Venice are the, is that the crowds are always sort of in the same places and it's not too hard to go a little bit outside, a little bit off the beaten path and find these hidden gems. Mm -hmm. So this actually like kind of brings me back to your book in a way, like, what inspires the book? Do you see a place and want to write a book about it? Do you see a thing and want to write a book about it? Or like, how do books form for you? You know, it's it's a good question. It's different for every book, really. Um, I'll give you an example of my first historical novel, um, how that came to pass. I was uh, researching Made in Italy, uh, which is uh, one of my my guidebooks. It was the original guidebook and has gone through several editions and still going after 20 something years. It's been updated and revised, but I was traveling around um, Italy and I was researching that book and I was interviewing um, these gondola makers and they are, you know, among the last of the, of this huge tradition of, um, of, of handmade gondola making in Venice. Wow. And I had been traveling all over the Italian peninsula and interviewing artisans. And what was fascinating is that I heard the same, kind of story over and over which is oh it's really vital to us to pass along this tradition to our children and our grandchildren otherwise it will die and um, you know I heard that passion and that desire to push forward the, the ideas and the techniques and the traditions from one generation to the next all over the Italian peninsula well I started to wonder what would happen if the the air was not able or willing for some reason to, to carry on the, the torch of tradition, then what would happen? And wow, so yeah. this idea of this gondola maker and his complicated relationship with his son sort of popped into my head out of, out of the ether. And, um, you know, when I thought about the gondola as such a uniquely Venetian type of boat, um, you know, the story just sort of grew in my head from there. And it was one of those stories that percolated for a while, but mm-hmm. wouldn't let me go. And I think that's mm-hmm. when you know you have a good creative project is when you sort of push it to the to the wings of the stage and it keeps wanting to come out and, you know, sing a solo. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, was one of those things that wouldn't let me go and it just kept coming back. So typically I know if, uh, if that happens over and over again, that's, that's the story. That's the book that I need to write next. Love it. Do we lose Lee? Lee, no, I'm still here. I'm listening. Okay, <laughs> okay. I was just wondering if you had. Did you, did you have anything else? You have any other questions? We got. We oh, probably yeah, have a whole huge yeah. list. My my next question is: I mean, because you have, I mean, you speak so well about the places that you've been to. Where next? Like. <laughs> Ah. I mean, okay, strip away the pandemic, okay, and <laughs> strip away the pandemic and, you know, airline prices and all that. Like, what's next on your list or where are you most curious about? Oh, well, I always love to 
explore somewhere new. But um, I'll tell you, I, I really have such a love um, for France and Italy. And just before the pandemic, I had begun um, a big research project about the ancient Etruscans um, mm. who occupied central Italy before the Romans. And I, it's a subject I've been teaching for a long time and um, something that I find really fascinating. In fact, I was in Italy just before the pandemic hit on a on an Etruscan research trip. And I'm I'm keen, I'm eager to go back and finish <laughs> what, I, <laughs> what I started there. And, um, you know, what's People might say, oh, my gosh, that's the most esoteric topic in the entire world. You know, how would you be fascinated by that? But it is actually um, interesting for travelers, I think, because um, the Etruscans really knew how to pick beautiful locations. And there are some small towns off the beaten track destinations and places across Tuscany, Umbria, Lazio, and the central part of Italy that are um, very little known and little visited. Um, and so while your friends are in line at the Colosseum, you can whisk yourself away to one of these little visited places. And um, there are, it's a, it's an interesting topic too. just, um, in terms of studying Italian culture and history, I think there are a lot of roots of cuisine and family life and art and culture and wine and food and um, that sort of stretch back to the Etruscan era. So it's an interesting way into learning about Italian history, I think. I love it. I can't wait for that trip and then the book. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a baby in winter and I want to know when you will have a baby historical fiction book. Oh, <laughs> <wow>. <laughs> Is that that's, in the cards? That's great. I know I need to clone myself into about six different <laughs> <Yeah>. versions. <laughs> that's great. There are a lot of really good um, art history books for children um, out there well, about there? specific okay. artists and look at the uh, look at the museums shops you know for oh, example yeah. you go to the mm-hmm. art museums and the stores they they have more and more great um, kids books and uh, for you know toddler board books and things like that about art history so they're okay. they're terrific good tip and the 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 best thing is the um I have a ten year old. And actually, I have a background in art. I was actually an art student at one point. Then I realized I couldn't feed myself. I wasn't that good. Um, but I love it nonetheless. But um, the thing is, they have all a bunch of really great art books that teach kids like um, why that's art, especially modern art, because you have to understand the idea, not just what they're portraying. So you got to check those out. Yeah, person. absolutely. And, you know, on my, I did a, a lesson uh, for Ted called What's the Difference Between Art and Craft? And it's exactly what Ooh. you just said, Zen. It's sort of, you know, how do you um, figure out what the idea is? Um, so if anybody wants to check that out, it's you can go to lauramorelli.com slash art craft, art craft, and see that video. And it's um, it's. Not for babies, but certainly school age kids. I think it's animated. You know, they could get something out of it. Definitely. Now that would have been helpful because I was at the Laguna Art Festival last night. So 
Um, oh. And I could have played that for my 21-year-old sister. So now I, I, I'm going to actually look it up and share it with her so that we can kind of say, okay, what was it that kind of, that set the art festival apart from maybe what, across the street at the Sawdust Festival? So. Exactly. The, the wind chimes and ashtray part is what I call it. <laughs> <laughs> it's one side, it's art. The other part is wind chimes and ashtrays. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds exactly like my kind of place. <laughs> I love, don't get me wrong. I love both. There's something very important about decorative Absolutely. crafts. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that to make something that's functional, beautiful is very important. But at mm-hmm. the same time, art is something different than that. So, mm-hmm. um, so you know, writing books from what I've seen and heard from other authors, some people have a very formed idea of, of you know, beginning, middle, end, and they write it, um, and it kind of goes straight through. And then other people are crafters that it constantly is evolving. Um, how do you find your books? Are you somewhere in between the two, one or the other? And then how does your, do you find that your books, when you start writing them, um, they take on a life of their own and become something different than you expected when you started? Yeah, I, I would say all of the above. <laughs> I'll tell you, in, you know, in the writing community, we identify ourselves as either plotters or pantsers. And, you know, the plotters are people like me. I am a plotter, 100%. I start out, you know, with a, with an outline. I, I, I know my beginning, middle, and end. Um, I always start knowing what the end is going to be. A pantser is someone who writes by the seat of their pants, who just sits down and goes. And I have friends that are pantsers, and I don't know how they do it. I would be terrified. I mean, but I know people who that's the only way they can write. And it's fascinating because no two writers have the same process. Um, you know, I have a friend who she will sit down, has no idea what's going to happen in the story. She picks up from the page she finished the day before and just goes forward. I um, start with an outline. Um, I know how I want the story to end. It's kind of like if you were going to drive from my house here in North Carolina out to where you guys are in Southern California, you would sit down with your with your map and you would say, okay, I'm going to go um, from here to, um, I don't know, Nashville, and then I'm going to stop in St. Louis, and then I'm going out toward, you know, I'm going to head toward toward Phoenix. I don't know what the route is exactly, but you would sort of know what your milestones are along the way to your destination. And so that's sort of how I start a story is to know this is the beginning, this is the destination, and these are some of the the stops along the way, if you will. Um, But having said that, um, the story always takes another direction at some point. I, I try to end up where I where I was going but you know very often there are detours off the road um, you know to all of the different attractions that come up what happens is uh, the character begins to live and breathe and take on a life of their own and they want to go in another direction than what you thought and so um, that's you know a lot of times I'll you know, go, go, go forward, and then I'll get stuck. I'll have to stop for a while. It's like having a flat tire, you know, I'll have to stop for a while and re 
jigger things, go back, um, add stuff, delete stuff to accommodate this new twist that I didn't see coming, this new thing that happened that I didn't realize when I started. Um, so it is definitely um, a long process and one that's um, a little bit circuitous. <laughs> cool. Wow. Do we have any last questions for Laura before we uh, give this come to a close? Or, well, I want to know how I can find and buy this book that's coming out. Great, yeah. Um, you can go the to lady. you can go to lauramorelli.com slash lady. And you'll find all of the, the places where you can pre-order the book. I'm actually um, putting together a seminar called The Secrets of the Mona Lisa that goes mm. over all of the crazy stories and controversies surrounding the, the Mona Lisa <laughs> over the last oh, couple wow. decades. And um, if you pre-order the book before it comes out on the 21st of September, I'll, I'll send you a um, access into that seminar. So, um that is uh, that's fun. So it's just lauramorelli.com and it's M O R E L L I uh, slash lady. Perfect. And if you want to know um, what to bring home from Italy in your suitcase, you can go to lauramorelli.com slash Italy and find some, uh, I have a little audio guide that tells you how to find those authentic artisans, like the ones I was talking about. Do you have any, are you on social or anything like that, that where we can find you? I'm on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for the most part. And is it Laura Morelli as well? I believe my handle is Laura Morelli PhD. Okay. Perfect. It shouldn't be too hard to find. <laughs> Great. Very good. Wait. Well, thanks for tuning in to me, author Laura Morelli. Be sure to buy her upcoming book, The Stolen Lady, a novel of World War II and the Mona Lisa. We hope that you guys had as much fun as we did. What do you think? Let us know on our social media channels where you can find photos of our adventures from around the world, interesting articles, and more. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> Thanks for coming. We're glad that I you spent this time with us. Yeah. You'll yes. have to come again. You have such <laughs> wonderful questions. Thank you. Yeah, it sounds like you're a real expert on Italy, too. I feel like we could really utilize this info on a future <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Yeah, if you ever want to want to do something, I don't know if you'd ever do specific, you know, cities or destinations. I could talk more about Venice or Florence or, um, you know, whatever, whatever, or off the beaten path stuff, whatever you think. (laughs) Okay, you've offered it. We're we're gonna you're you're in trouble now. Well, for our listeners, if you're new to our podcast because you just jumped in, check out some of our older ones on Cuba, London, and of course, France, to name a few. And be sure to check out Laura on her socials. Thank you. Oh, and uh, meet us in Paris is the University of California, Irvine, Division of Continuing Education Production. If you need a career boost, looking to increase your workplace knowledge, or seeking a new profession, Check them out at ce.uci.edu for their professional courses. And thanks again for tuning in. Bye. Bye. The baby was saying bye, too. (laughs) He's sad it's over. (laughs) 